The Old Testament reading this morning is on page 788 in your pew Bibles. It comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 7 through 14. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob, shout for the foremost of the nations, Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim, my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord." This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading this morning is John... One, one through eighteen. I think it's page one sixty-two. But I, okay. And the title here is in our pew Bibles: "The Word Became Flesh." In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, friends. Um, If you would uh, join me, let's uh, pray together before we dive deeper into God's word. God, you have made us to know you. You have made us to flourish in your presence. And uh, God, in our rebellion, in our insistence on uh, our being God, We have fallen so far from that human flourishing that you intend for us. But you are a God of redemption. You are a God who never gives up on, uh, on us whom you love. And so as you speak through your word, we pray that our, uh, our minds, our, our ears, our hearts, our lives would be open. In Jesus' name, together all God's people prayed. Amen. So we are looking at John chapter 1, 1 through 18, this famous prologue of uh, John's wonderful gospel. And I've never preached on this before. It's kind of a, an intimidating text. It's so lofty and, and beautiful. And, uh, uh, you know, one commentator, she points out that Augustine and Christostom both believe that, that these 18 verses were clearly beyond the capability of any human being to write on their own. They're, they're so beautiful. They're so majestic. Uh, so we're going to approach those now. And I, I'd like to, I thought a good way into this would be to invite you to, uh, to close your eyes for a minute. You trust me to close your eyes. No one's going to punch you in the face. Actually, I can't guarantee that. Someone <laughs> I, I probably won't. Close your eyes. 
uh, and just imagine for a second what it would be like to be tasked with the story, tasked with uh, the job of writing the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you were given this lofty task, how might you begin the story? Imagine the, the blank page before you if you write with pen and paper, the, the open Word documents, the blank page. How would you, how would you start? What story might you choose to open with? What guiding images might you choose to lead off with? What would your opening line be? All right, you can open your eyes now. Does anybody have any uh, good answers to that? You can. This isn't rhetorical. This is a sermon on the incarnation, so that'd be fitting to involve you a little bit. Any any uh, great ideas right out of the gate? It'd be an intimidating task, wouldn't it? And I'm I'm glad that uh, that that task fell on John's shoulders and not mine. But this is, these are all questions that the Apostle John at one point in his life had to wrestle with. How would he go about telling, beginning the story of Jesus Christ? John uh, wrote his gospel last, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written. Um, he probably wrote about 40 years after the actual events that he was an eyewitness to as one of Jesus' uh, inner circle and so now he's, he's uh, an older man in his 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s. We don't know for sure. And he's had a lifetime to reflect on what the life of Jesus means. And he, uh, so to speak, puts his pen to paper. And here's what he says. In the beginning was the word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And he goes on, this, this beautiful, as I said, majestic prologue. Um, it's, it's, if you listen to what some of the commentators have said as they, as they talk about this, these opening 18 verses of the prologue, one commentator says, one feels on holy ground when entering the prologue of John's gospel. Here we have the overture to the symphony of the whole gospel. The preface to the greatest story ever told. The introduction to history's central fact. The foreword to the last word. Someone else said, John's style, especially in this passage, is preeminent for its simplicity, subtlety, and sublimity. And lastly, someone else uh, said, if John has been described as the pearl of great price among New Testament writings, then one may say that this prologue is the pearl within the gospel. 
We are on holy ground. So as we, uh, as we dive in, as we look closer this morning at um, what John wants to tell us in his introduction to the, the story of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, we're going to look at this passage in, in three movements. Um, we're going to look at Jesus, the Word of God, Jesus, the light of God, and Jesus as the flesh of God. Jesus, John tells us, is the word of God. In the beginning. What an opening. In the beginning. Of course, these words would bring to mind, and do bring to mind, uh, the very first page of our Bible, page 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John, in a sense, in, re- in recalling to mind Genesis 1, in recalling to mind the beginning of the story, he's, he's zooming out. He's giving us the wide-angle view of who this person Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right away, John thinks the most important thing to tell us about this person of Jesus is that he's no ordinary person at all. This Jesus, it's interesting, he goes further even than what Genesis says, right? Genesis says, in the beginning, God created, God made. But here he's actually seeing uh, not just that God made, but in the beginning was One writer says, who does John think he is to describe things that happened some 14 billion years ago? He says, who does he think he is, or who does he think this person, his subject is? Right away, John wants to make clear that this is no ordinary person, that this being called the Word, the Logos, the the wisdom of God. Richard Rohr says that the blueprint of of God and of humanity and of God's intentions for creation, that this being is himself divine. It's interesting, uh, I thought about how to say he's with God and then to say he was God, and there's almost a little bit of a, a confusion there, but I think it's, it's uh, one of these early... Um, intimations of what a few, century, a few centuries later the church would come to articulate as the Trinity, that God is three and one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you even see that hinted at in these verses, that he's both with God in cooperation with God and is himself God. John's showing us that this person of Jesus is a part of uh, the Godhead that is this unending dance, this Trinity, this this relationship that exists within God's self of love, of a, a lover, of the beloved, of a spirit of love, and this unending dance of, of hospitality towards one another, of making space for the other, of serving and uh, bowing and honoring one another. This is who this person of Jesus is. This is the story of God the Word, the second person of the Trinity, come to earth in Jesus Christ. He wants these truths to be unmistakable. And uh, 
you know, it's interesting. There's a lot that can be said about the word word here. Again, logos uh, in, in, the, in the Greek. Um, it had all sorts of uh, connotations coming from uh, the previous few centuries of Greek philosophy, this idea of the wisdom of God. But um, most literally, to, to think of the word of God, what does it mean to call Jesus the word of God? We think of, of speech, right? We think of words, of expressing oneself in a particular way. And so all these things we're talking about, Jesus, the word of God, the light of God, the flesh of God, these are all ways that Jesus reveals to the world the glory of God. These are all ways that Jesus is showing the world who God is. And so uh, the early church fathers would talk about um, Jesus relating to God as the word of God, being like Audible words relate to inaudible thoughts. Isn't that interesting? You think about what, what the thoughts of God might look like. We know what someone is thinking through their speech, through their words. Jesus is the word of God, the speech of God. Jesus shows us in audible word what the inaudible thoughts of God are. Jen and I, uh, on Christmas Eve, after our kids went to bed, we were, you know, sitting around uh, wrapping presents, and we were watching the movie Love Actually, a great Christmas classic. Um, And uh, if you know the film, you know Colin Firth plays a a writer who goes to France to write this book, and he has a a woman named Aurelia who... um, is hired to kind of take after his, his cottage in France, and she, she only speaks Portuguese, and he doesn't speak Portuguese, and she doesn't speak English. And so, um, you know, the whole movie is all these love stories that kind of happen throughout the film that are woven together. And uh, they fall in love with each other, even though they don't speak the same language. And um, it's interesting, because you get the subtitles of her Portuguese, and so you can see how they're missing each other, even as they fall in love. And uh, they part ways at one point. She drops him off at the airport, and, and she kisses him for the first time. And they go off, and they spend the next uh, several months learning each other's languages. Because as much connection as there is, even though they don't speak the same language, as much as they feel a oneness and attachment to each other, a care and understanding of each other, uh, there's still a huge gap in not speaking the same language. And so they learn the words to make inaudible thoughts transform into audible words. And this is what God does for us in Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful that God, thinking, how can I make myself, how can I reveal myself most clearly to my beloved human creatures? What better way than to come into creation as one of us? Dale Bruner uh, writes in his commentary, um, We long to know who God is and what God thinks and does. And in Jesus, God's most personal word, God has spoken to us. 
in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thoughts and heart. If you want to see what the heart of God looks like, look to the person of Jesus. So we talked about Jesus, the Word of God, which, which John unpacks more in verses 1 through 8. And there's so much in here. Really, we could spend, you know, probably 18 weeks going through 18 verses here. Um, there's so much depth to these things. But uh, we've talked about Jesus, the Word of God. Um, now we look at John's image of Jesus, the light of God. Verse 9, he says this, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was known, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The light that shines in the darkness. And again, he calls God, uh, Jesus, the light, the light. At one point, he calls him the true light here in verse 9. Jesus describes, uh, John describes Jesus as the light to all people. The light, the true light that gives light to everyone. Right? It's indiscriminate. Jesus is the light of the world, the light of all people. And already uh, in this, we, we see this foreshadowing of of the cross, which John will later in his gospel spend four whole chapters unpacking the death and resurrection of Jesus. He alludes to that when he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Light by nature casts out darkness. It can do no other thing. And as if that wasn't enough to say just that the light shines in darkness, John goes further to say the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that amazing? I, I think of how hard it is, uh, at least for me these days, to, to have hope. Um, it's easy to turn on the news or to, to look around um, and to find all sorts of reasons for discouragement. There's so much darkness in the world. And especially this week as we read about war, rumors of war, there's all kinds of, of opportunity for us to give in to the temptation to believe that darkness has won. And it was the case in John's day too. That's been the case throughout all of church history. It's not new to our times. And so John goes out of his way to say the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Even though sometimes it appears to the contrary, the darkness has not overcome it. Because on the cross, we, it seemed as though darkness had prevailed. But Jesus, the light, casts out darkness and gives us hope. This, uh, this imagery of light, I was trying to think of, um, you know, darkness is, is scary, right? We've got three little kids that can attest to that. They need their nightlights and 
I remember as a kid going into our basement, we uh, lived in Wabatos, Wisconsin. We had this old house with a really creepy basement. And I remember just being terrified of having to go down and change the laundry, uh, even when I was probably you know, 11, 12 years old. And uh, of all the, the scary you know, corners of the basement, the absolute scariest place in the basement was, um, if you went deep enough into the basement, we had these, these two big red doors, that kind of ugly 70s red, probably coated in layers of lead paint. And uh, they would rarely get open because those doors opened up into this kind of brick area with these steps that went out uh, outside through these storm doors, right? We called them the Bilko doors. But if you're older than me, think of uh, Dorothy and Wizard of Oz and and they're, you know, the tornado's coming. They have to open those storm doors and go down in the basement. If you're younger than me, then you could picture uh, in The Mandalorian um, <laughs> when Mando has flashbacks of his childhood and his parents are running with them. They open the storm doors, right? Tracking with me. Uh, so, we had, so we had those storm doors, and we only opened them, I remember, a couple days of the year. Uh, so they were almost always closed, and it, there was no lights in there. There was no you know, ceiling, really. And so it'd be uh, the scariest part of the basement when we were kids. To, we'd dare each other to open those and to go into that dark area of the basement. And I, as I thought of that, I reflected on the difference of how that space felt between those times when those doors were closed and, and the darkness ruled that space. And those one or two days of the year when those doors were open. And usually it would be uh, when, you know, my dad would be working on the house um, and I would be his little helper and it'd usually be a, a beautiful summer day and he'd be hauling some kind of, you know, a, a, a bunch of two-by-fours by wheelbarrow to that back uh, storm door to, to bring them into the basement. And, and I have this memory of, you know, my dad would we'd be outside and he'd say, okay, Tony, I need you to run down and unlock those doors from the inside because you had to unlock them from the inside. And I remember opening them in the darkness and then waiting as my dad unlatched and opened those storm doors. And the light that would just blast into that space. And all of a sudden this dark space was transformed by by these open doors and by the sunlight and the fresh air that came flowing through. And you could see we had these big trees, these huge trees in our backyard, and all the green and the blue and the clouds. And seeing my dad standing there, uh, you know, usually sweaty from working with his cut-off sleeve shirt, looking strong and healthy and smiling as we, as we worked together. And the feeling that came with that, that, that the comfort... The, the feeling of freshness and life that came with that light. And with that light came my, my father who brought extra comfort and strength with that light. John calls Jesus the light, the true light. It's a name he uses that Jesus is this light that casts out darkness. And there's this association here, right, in these verses between light and life. And I think of David in the Psalms reflecting on his unconfessed sin. 
you might say, the, the, the things he harbored in darkness before bringing out into the light. When we talk about truth or confession or coming clean, we say we bring something into the light. And when David describes his condition before confessing his sin, he said, inwardly, my bones wasted away. To live in darkness, to live separated from the light is, is death. Our planet needs light to survive. We are dependent on the sun for our existence. Jesus, John tells us, is the light and the life of God reveals to us. So we talked about the, uh, Jesus revealing God's glory to us. Um, Jesus as the word of God. Jesus as the light of God. And lastly, we look at Jesus, the flesh of God. Um, which is such an amazing thing. Jesus, the flesh of God. Verse 14. This is where, you know, this lofty uh, prologue gets grounded in, in such tangible dirt and blood and sweat and tears where, where the lofty grandeur and abstract notion of Jesus as the word and in the beginning, it, it hits home in this, this concrete moment of the word becoming flesh. John says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then he closes verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made God known. If, uh, if you've ever read about... Um, C.S. Lewis, such a, a fascinating figure. You know, he's, many have called him the, the most influential Christian writer of the last hundred years. And um, C.S. Lewis was an atheist for a lot of his adult life. And then at one point um, came to, to theism, to some belief that there is a God. And then a couple years later, in, in 1931, he finally came to a point of, of becoming a Christian. And it was this, this hard-fought battle. He says he came kicking and screaming and his, uh, darting his eyes in every direction looking for an escape. It was something that he felt God was just drawing him to, that he couldn't resist any longer. And, and if you read uh, the history of his conversion, he, he talks about, um, he's got his, his his book, Surprised by Hope, is his personal account of some of this. But historians talk about um, a conversation that happened one night in 1931 where he was on a walk with his uh, friend and colleague, J.R.R. Tolkien, the, uh, of course, the author of The Lord of the Rings. And uh, the two of them were professors at Oxford, and Tolkien, this devout um, Christian, Catholic, he... Uh, he and, and C.S. Lewis were going for a walk one night, and they ended up, I think, walking till about one in the morning in this path that you can still, if you, if you go to Oxford, walk along. And uh, they talked till one in the morning, and then Lewis went home and was awake for the next three hours 
thinking about this conversation. And this ended up being the conversation that really uh, was a huge step for convincing him uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. And what it was that Tolkien had said to him as they walked and talked, he said to him, you know, both of them were professors in medieval literature. And Tolkien said to Lewis, what if all these stories that we study, that we read, that we tell, what if all of these stories that we love so much, what if they're true? And Lewis said, you know, what are you talking about? How can, of course, all these, you know, these medieval stories and all these sagas, we, we know the authors, we, they don't even claim that they're true. And Tolkien said, no, 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 what, but, but what if they're true? What if, what if undergirding, undergirding all of creation, behind it all, the existence of all things, what if in its deepest reality there exists this, this great story of like all these stories that we study, this pattern of uh, people in crisis, of some sort of conflict, of some sort of problem. And then in all these stories, there's, there's this drama that builds and builds and builds, and it comes to this kind of climactic moment when a hero comes to save the day. And so often in so many of these stories, this hero is this chosen one or this prophesied one or this, this, this being who comes from outside of the story and comes in and saves the day. And all this, this tension, all this buildup, all these moments where it seems like evil has won, good comes out victorious in the end. He says, look at the pattern of all these stories. What if it's true? And that planted a seed in, in Lewis's head, and he went home and he thought about that. And he, and he couldn't think any other way after that conversation. What if these things are true? And that's still the case. I mean, you, you know, you go to the movie theater, so often again and again, it's that same story. It's that same pattern. It's, there's something so deep to that. Um, again, Dale Bruner in his commentary, he, he talks about... Um, reading in an article once about how uh, in, in American Western films there's this, there's this recurring theme throughout Western films of the hero coming from outside of town. And uh, he says he went to, to Blockbuster, this is back in the day, and rented, uh, you know, picked kind of the four most famous Westerns he could find. So he gets um, High Noon and Shane and... Um, uh, Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford and Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood. And he says he noticed as he watched, you know, he's like, it wouldn't take me that much time. I pop in the movies and just watch kind of the beginning and see who these characters are. And he, he goes through this in his commentary and shows again and again. He's like, first I start with High Noon and Gary Cooper gets married to Grace Kelly and he's the sheriff, but the bad guys are coming. But he tells the town, you know, I just got married. And he's, of course, if you're married to Grace Kelly, you're going to go off and, you know, and so they leave town, and, and uh, Bruner's thinking, dang it, I thought, you know, this isn't what I expected. But then when they reach the outskirts of town, he turns to her and says, I've never run away from a fight in my life. And he comes back, and Bruner notices. That's interesting. Even, you know, even when the sheriff is in town, he has to leave and then come back. And he goes, he does that with Shane and tells the same story. And for 
For Jeremiah Johnson, the opening narration describes a man who came, he was a man who lived in the mountains who nobody knew where he came from. Again, this mysterious hero from the outside. He says, unforgiven, they have to go outside of town and find Clint Eastwood. Again, out from the outside, the hero comes in. And then he ponders, where, did, where does this come from? Bruner says, might it be that that this narrative of a hero coming from outside is written into what it means to be human. This resonance with this great story. Maybe the story is true. Jesus, Paul says in Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. The image of the invisible God. Just as John says, no one has ever seen God But in Jesus, he has made himself known. Another image is, uh, if you've ever been to to London in Trafalgar Square, Square, there's this great tower of Admiral Horatio Nelson, this uh, war hero back in 1805. And uh, they found, after a while, that the problem with the tower, it's this beautiful great tower um, with this 15-foot figure statue on top of the admiral, but it's 169 feet in the air, and nobody could see the statue. This, this, this hero figure that was to be exalted was so high up that he was inaccessible for the people to see. And so about 50 or 60 years ago, uh, City of London decided to make a replica that is eye-to-eye level with, with people so that they could see this exalted figure eye-to-eye and see what he looked like. Hebrews 1, 1-3 thir- 1, 1 talks about this sun is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's being. These New Testament writers are telling us, if you want to know what God is like, look to the person of Jesus. And it's amazing how easily we can, we can get off, off track from that. Jen was telling me this morning, she's like, I just got in another Facebook argument. And I thought, oh, Grace. Uh, but she was responding to someone, you know, argument about war and a Christian response to, to war and where Christians should stand on this. And uh, this guy that she was kind of sparring with, who's a friend of a friend, someone she's never met, but um, he was saying, we've waited long enough for Jesus to come. Uh, we need to take matters into our own hands. <laughs> uh, and, and Jen just kind of gently but, but firmly uh, told a few examples of, of Jesus stories. Of, you know, one of which is, you know, even when when Peter tried to take things in his own hands and sliced off the ear of the soldiers the night they came to capture and crucify Jesus, Jesus healed the ear of the soldier and said, this isn't the way. She brought the conversation back to, to stories of Jesus, to the person of Jesus. And uh, we can get lost sometimes in and thinking, who is, what is God like? Who, how does God feel about me? How does God feel about the city of Grand Rapids and our institutions and Sherman Street Church? And where is God? And These New Testament writers are saying, 
Look to Jesus. Jesus reveals to us what God is like. Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the exact imprint of God's very being. And, um, you know, I'll kind of close by talking about Jen and I both see spiritual directors. I know some of you uh, have that as a, a spiritual discipline as well. And it's been great. It's been a great thing um, for both of us. I, something I've, I've noticed in conversations with the spiritual director, and if you don't know what spiritual direction is, it's, it, you know, it's a one-on-one hour sessions with a, someone who's trained as a director. And uh, it sometimes kind of feels like counseling, but it's different from kind of counseling or coaching or... Um, really, it, the conversation keeps coming back to, to questions like, well, where is God in that for you? Where, where do you see God? How does God, how do you imagine God feels about that thing that happened to you or this job you have to do? And something I've, I've learned through these sessions is that there's often a, a gap in my own life, and I think if we're honest in all of our lives, between what we, what we say about God, what we say we believe about God, I think often what we actually believe we believe about God, and what we actually believe about God. I mean, you know, you can grow up in the church and you can learn the the right answers, the right, you know, we stand, we say the Apostles' Creed together. You You can say as a Christian, God is good, God provides God loves me. You can go through these things, right? They're simple truths of Scripture, basic theology. And yet to actually believe these things is a whole other thing. And in my, my experience of spiritual direction, I, I often find, you know, I can, I can talk about, um, yeah, I, I believe that God is with me when I come up to preach. And I believe that God speaks through God's word that the word of God shall never return. But I believe these things, and yet they're my anxiety, my insecurity, my, my worry maybe shows that, do I really believe these things? And there's so often this gap. And I know for a lot of you, there's, um, there's heartache, there's pain, there's things that have happened to you that have left you, I think, on a gut level, um, struggling to believe that God loves you. Struggling to believe that, that God has really forgiven you and that you can let go of whatever shame you hold on to. That God has said that is dealt with, that is done. I don't see that past of yours anymore. The Bible actually says that God actually uh, not only forgives but forgets our sin, it says in Jeremiah, which is just unimaginable. We can talk about these and we can know the answers, we can speak the, the Christian lingo, but to actually believe in your gut that God loves you, or that God will provide in whatever you're going through right now, or that God is with you, even in those darkest moments, uh, those sleepless nights where you might feel so empty and, and lost and alone. It's tempting to, to come up with all these false images of a God who is far away, or God who doesn't care. And yet, if what John is saying is true, and what the writer of Hebrews and Paul, if all these things are true, 
then we can simply look to the person of Jesus and again say, this is what God is like. If you're wondering if God loves you, look to the person of Jesus and, and meditate on the character of the one who went to all the sinners, the tax collectors, the outcasts, and embraced them like nobody ever had. The lepers, I mean, if you believe that God uh, can, if you, if you struggle to believe that God can heal you, look at the stories of Jesus um, touching and healing and casting out evil and bringing about healing and health and wholeness and resurrection. If you struggle to believe that God is with you, Look at the baby Jesus who came into the most uh, humble of circumstances to enter into our suffering and our pain. This is what God is like. This is the God we gather to worship and to meet with. Let us pray together. God, we thank you that we don't have to uh, to guess or to wonder about what the heart of the creator of the universe looks like. Thank you that we don't need to live unsure of whether or not there is uh, meaning or purpose or any sort of direction or grounding in this experience we call being human. And Lord, we struggle, we confess, we struggle to believe these things. We struggle to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. The one who came in the flesh, who took on humanity to walk with us. The one who, who taught and ate and laughed and fed and wept. The one who submitted himself to death rather than choosing the way of violence. And the one who is resurrected and victorious, who affirmed to us that love is stronger than hate, that death does not have the last word, that light casts out darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Lord, uh, speak to us, reveal yourself to us, Give us this hope. Give us this confidence in who you are. Remind us and assure us of your presence with us and your great love. And send us out from here to ourselves be light in the darkness, to be hope in a world that so desperately needs hope, to be beacons of of love in a world of violence. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of of this world that you so desperately love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.